Well, greetings everyone and welcome back to Seminary Unboxed. I am Matt Ayers, the host of Seminary Unboxed and president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Wesley Biblical Seminary exists to develop trusted leaders for faithful churches. Lots of great things happening at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Um, we are the fifth fastest growing seminary in the nation, according to ATS, the Association of Theological Schools. Uh, with a, we, Every semester, we continue to break our own internal enrollment records, and which is a very exciting time uh, for us. If you want to find out more about WBS and what we're doing, or to even get involved, maybe enroll in some classes, audit some courses, sign up for our Wesley Institute, lots of programming available for everyone. I tell people quite often that seminary is not just for pastors. If you want to go deeper in your knowledge of Scripture and deeper in your knowledge of Christian theology, uh, then come and talk to us. We have lots of opportunities for you beyond just auditing classes. Of course, you can audit classes. We have a very accessible audit course fee, uh, but also we have the Wesley Institute program with two tracks, uh, one focused on going through the Bible in a year, or at least nine in nine months, and the other on... Um, on Christian theology. Uh, wonderful, wonderful program. So wbs.edu, wbs.edu. Okay, so we're in the book of Revelation. We're in our last um, lesson before launching into um, the content of the book itself. Now, we've touched, of course, on on different parts of the book of we's, as, as we've dealt, for example, in, last, in our last episode on the date of the book and talking about 666 and uh, the reference to measuring the temple in Revelation 11. Uh, but as we, you know, the focus of this series on the book of Revelation is going to be an exegetical analysis of the book. Not super in-depth, obviously, uh, because of the nature of this program. Uh, but again, we're setting a hermeneutical frame. That is the interpretive frame for jumping into the book, talking about things like the author, who wrote the book, uh, when was the book written, um, the genre or the kind of literature uh, that the book is, or at least features, let's say, apocalyptic, epistolary, and prophetic. And we talked about the different characteristics of apocalyptic literature. And this is the last um, little bit of this introductory uh, framework setting bit of this uh, series. We're going to talk about the schools of interpretation, uh, interpreting the book of Revelation. Um, so one of the things that I've been saying from the very beginning is that this is a very unique book. As we know, you know, you spend just a few minutes in the book of Revelation, and it's obvious that this isn't the kind of literature that we read very often. Um, even in the context of Scripture itself, let alone in our uh, outside of extra-biblical reading. So we're usually pretty accustomed to reading the Gospels. We're accustomed to reading Paul's epistles and other epistles in the New Testament. Maybe even, of course, the Old Testament stories, narrative, um, maybe even uh, apocalyptic literature, excuse me, prophetic literature. Of course, we're used to reading the poetry of the Psalms. But when we arrive at Revelation, it's just, it's it's quite different. And... Um, and that has to do with, as we said before, uh, the genre of literature. This is apocalyptic literature. And um, because it's apocalyptic literature, um, it's, it's, it, there seems to be a broader range of interpretation, different ways of interpreting things uh, that's, that's uh, I don't know, more loosely held. Could, we could perhaps say it that way. Now, I, I want to be really careful with that and add a footnote to say that it doesn't mean that any interpretation goes. Um, of course, we believe, or at least I believe, in the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, that the meaning of the text is clear when we read it with the help of the Holy Spirit seeking to love and obey God, so that there is a specific meaning of the text, and there's a specific meaning to the original historical audience. However, one of the features of apocalyptic literature, as we talked about before, is that it's, it's, it looks to the future. It's about the end of all things. 
And because it looks to a distant future, um, although it's even, we have to put a footnote on that, uh, let's say, adjective, distant future, you know, in the opening verses of the book, it says that uh, this is the book that reveals the things that must soon take place. So are these things in the, in the far distant future for the original audience or for um, the originator of the, of the content, John or Jesus, God the Father, as we've talked about in, in our authorship lesson. We'll talk more about that as we get into the book itself. So the distant future, that leaves room for interpretation, different schools of interpretation that have emerged of how do we, how do we place this historically, chronologically? What is the temporal or time orientation of this book? Um, when, when Revelation in the first chapter says that this is the revelation of things that must soon take place, how are we defining soon here? Because obviously there are things described in the book of Revelation, many would argue, and some would argue not, but many would argue that haven't happened yet here 2,000 years later. So what does that mean, soon take place? And so there are different answers to that question, which has uh, caused the, let's say, um, the birth of or the development of different schools of interpretation as relates to time, um, how we can place these events with regard to time. Now, I will say... As we move through the book and deal with different passages with regard to when things happen, you know, for example, let me just give you a quick example. You have lots of series of sevens in the book of Revelation. You have the seven bowls, you have the seven trumpets, you have the seven seals, and and uh, it's one view is that those are to be read chronologically and in sequence and in sequential order, that after the first set of seven happens, then the next set of seven happens, then the next set of seven happens. Uh, but many have suggested, and strong, confessional, spirit-filled interpreters of Scripture um, have suggested that these are actually not uh, sequential, moving in a linear pattern, but actually cyclical, that they're repetitions of things that we've already seen, uh, which would mean that what we see, for example, in the seven trumpets isn't exactly, you know, coming after. It doesn't mean that they necessarily succeed chronologically what happens in the seven seals. And so um, when we get to those places, we'll deal with those sorts of questions, uh, at least at a surface level. And so we have to deal with how do we interpret these things as relates to time. So uh, I will say that as I talk about these four schools, there are four of them that I'll talk about here, historicism, futurism, preterism, idealism, uh, that you'll probably feel yourself in a bit of a fog um, because some of them are, are, are pretty similar, like historicism and future, futurism have things in common. Preterism is easy uh, to define. Uh, idealism is, is just framed differently. So you're going to be going, I'm not sure I fully understand the distinctions between these. And that's okay. Um, as we move through the book, and we come to different places in the book where uh, the content lends itself to explaining the different ways of interpreting the content. So like when we arrive in Revelation chapter 20, for example, really great example of what's the historicist view of this, what's the futurist view versus preterist versus idealist view. It'll become more and more clear. And of course, the, the learning process is a process of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So we go from what we know, orientation, to deconstructing that a little bit. Uh, disorientation. Like, so what you know is, is there's bits and pieces to it that are right, or maybe a lot of it that's right, or maybe all of it that's right, and I'm going to add to it, thereby disorienting it. Uh, or I'm going to deconstruct it and demonstrate how uh, maybe there are some weaknesses in what we think we know. But then we're going to reconstruct it. So 
uh, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And so in the learning process, there's this disorientation phase where there's a deconstruction or at least a, a fogginess as opposed to, I thought I knew what I knew and now we're augmenting it. I'm not sure where I'm going. And so all that to say, don't be discouraged if the, the, the lines aren't extremely clear as we move through this. Um, I've experienced this in class with students where there's been a bit of a difficulty in really understanding some of the nuance and difference between these schools. Again, some of them are really, like preterism is clear. Idealism, in my view, is clear. Historicism, futurism is a little bit different. Uh, not as clear, the lines between them. So in any case, let's start with historicism, the historicist view or interpretive school for the book of Revelation. Uh, so historicism interprets Revelation as a forecast of the course of history leading up to the time of the interpreter, leading up to the time of the interpreter. And that's that's the key distinction. And so um, they look at the book of Revelation, the various series of sevens and all the events that occur therein. And they're saying, OK, um, if we if if we today in 2022, the time of the interpreter, right, let's assume that we are living in the last days. Then who, for us, historically, looking at the scope of history beginning with the first century, who can we identify as the beast? Um, who can we identify as the Antichrist? Who can we identify as the false prophet? Uh, more specifically, what is the mark of the beast, historically speaking, you know. So a historicist view would say, well, up into the time of the interpreter, we could identify the swastika, the Nazi swastika, as a mark of the beast. Um, and of course, as we move into new era of technology, some have suggested that the mark of the beast would be something digital, technologically advanced, like a microchip or something, uh, or a phone in our hands, whatever that, you know. So, so historicism interprets Revelation as a forecast of the course of history leading up to the time of the interpreter. So it's not as much focused on the distant future as it is on the past, historicism. Um, so here's a quote um, from Robert Mounts in his commentary on Revelation. He says, of little significance, uh, so this is, uh, let me say, before reading it, uh, this, I'm, I'm going to identify, or at least Mounts identifies one of the major weaknesses to this view. Uh, and that is, as of little significance to its initial readers. The apocalypse was held to sketch the history of Western Europe through the various popes, the Protestant Reformation, the French Revolution, the individual leaders such as Charlemagne and Mussolini. So in other words, let's say the mark of the beast, as from a historicist view, the mark of the beast is the, the Nazi swastika. Well, what does that mean to a first century, gen, mainly Gentile audience that John is writing to? There's no significance. What is the, they, they don't know what the Nazi swastika is. And so if we, if we isolate that to mean the mark of the beast is only the Nazi swastika or that um, the Antichrist or the beast, um, and those are not synonymous, but is one of the Catholic popes. Well, that doesn't have any significance to the original audience either. So this would be totally divorced from the original context. Uh, now, a historic, historicist view wouldn't necessarily need to concede that those interpretations are the only interpretation. So yes, it could be a swastika, but it could also be something else like currency, a coin with the emperor's face on it that says son of God over the, face, over the head, you know. And so um, there is a little bit of wiggle room there. Um, Mounts goes on to say the subjectivity of this approach is underscored by the fact that no essential agreement can be found between major proponents of the system. So historicism is the least uh, popular, I don't know if that's the right word, today. You don't find very many people offering a historicist um, interpretation. They usually do a blend of historicism and futurism. Um, so, uh, but 
if you look at different historicist interpretations, and we find these a lot in the medieval period uh, interpreting Revelation, uh, none of them match. They all identify different people as, so different scholars identify different individuals, movements, groups, countries, nations, etc., as characters in the book of Revelation, and none of them line up. And so when you know that there's very little uh, consensus, if not any essential agreement, then it's probably not correct. So um, Grant Osborne, who also wrote a great commentary on Revelation, I think it's the Baker exegetical commentary, says, because of its inherent weakness, that's the view, this view, the historicist, the historicist view's inherent weakness, that is, its identification with the Western church history, the inherent speculation involved in the parallels with world history, the fact that it must be reworked with each new period in world history, the total absence of any relevance for John and its original readers, for few scholars today take this approach. And so again, so every generation that dies and a new one that comes along, if you're to continue in the historicist vein, you have to you have to promote or at least suggest a new interpretation because the end obviously hasn't come yet. And so we have to shift and redefine, well, if the mark of the beast wasn't the Nazi swastika, what is it now? Is it a phone? And let's say the end doesn't come in this generation. Well, uh, what is it now in the next generation? Is it something else? And so historicism, um, again, the definition interprets Revelation as a forecast of the course of history leading up to the time of the interpreter. Um, so let's talk about futurism. Again, I think historicism will become clear as we define these other ones in, in juxtaposition with them or next to them. Um, so this is from Mounts and his um, definition of futurism. And by the way, in trying to find like concise definitions of these schools of interpretation, it was a challenge. Um so I, I, I drew from a number of different sources to find the best definitions, and I found Mounts was the clearest on this one. He says, The futurist or eschatological view is prominent among writers in Revelation, a major emphasis on the final victory of God over the forces of evil. Many futurists, especially dispensationalists, regard revel everything from Revelation 4.1 as belonging to a period of time yet future. Okay, so the futurist school of interpretation... Actually, I think the quote goes on. Yeah, let me finish. The major, I, I, let, let me wait. Let's talk about the weakness of this view. But um, the, the majority of evangelicals, and again, I count myself in that group, would be a futurist. Um, but certainly not all. But certainly not all. And this has to do with the influence of popular media and culture and left behind and the rapture theology with the Schofield Study Bible and Moody and all that stuff. Dis the dispensationalist view, which is a subcategory of futurism. Um, but the futurist view, there's different versions of it. But essentially, they look at the vast majority of the book as something, as events that didn't happen in the first century, or referring to events, describing events and realities that have yet to occur, or that are occurring now, and that will occur in the near future or distant future. So you can see how this is very similar to historicism, but different. You know, of course, the first, I say of course, when we get into the book, the first three chapters of Revelation are on uh, the letters to the seven churches. And those are obviously to a historical audience, right? He's writing to the church at Philadelphia, to Sardis, Laodicea, etc. And they would say, okay, starting in chapter 4, where John's heavenly throne vision begins, he's swept up to heaven. Doors open in heaven, he goes in and sees the, the indescribable, you know, scene of God's throne room. Uh, the futurist view says, from here on in the book is describing events that have yet to occur. And of course, of course... This makes sense. This has explanatory power because so many of the things that we read about from four on, uh, I would say even more so from six on, um, are so uh, wild 
that if they would have happened, it would have been obvious. For example, um, a third of the ocean, a third of the, the fish of the ocean being killed, stars falling from the sky, um, you know, locusts, demonic locusts, um, killing, torturing people, large, large numbers of the human population being not just tortured, but also killed, um, marks on people's foreheads. Like, the, we haven't... It, we haven't seen these things. Now, of course, you could talk about, you know, the various world wars, which would be a historicist view. Say, well, World War II um, aligns with X trumpet or X seal, right? Um, so because you can't definitively point to a specific event in history that seems to match those kinds of numbers, uh, it seems as if then that these events haven't happened yet. And if they haven't happened yet, then they will happen in the future, either distant or near. But the emphasis is distant future, at least from John's original audience, not necessarily from us, not, not necessarily from the time of the interpreter. So it could be, yes, very distant from John. John's writing to these seven churches in the first century, but what he's describing with these mass numbers could be today, 2,000 years later. That's distant from John. Uh, it could still be distant from us. Most futurists would suggest that it's not distant from us. It's rather close to us, and we're living at the time of the end. And so because there's no clear time in history where you can say, this is when this happened, it's not obvious. And it should be obvious because of how fantastical the numbers and events are. You can't miss it. And because it hasn't happened yet, this must be in the future, right? So that would be the kind of like the internal logic of the futurist position. So the major weakness, this is back to mounts, of this position is that it leaves the book without any particular significance for those whom it addressed. So this, the, the same weakness that was true for historicism is also true for futurism. So let's say that, uh, let's say that what John sees and what's revealed to him in the book of Revelation after chapter 4 is, uh, is in the distant future in relation to John, the original audience. And it has to do with things that haven't taken place yet even now 2,000 years later. Well, what does that even mean to the original audience? Now, one could argue, strongly argue, that it still, still does have meaning to the original audience, and that is whether it's in the near future or distant future, God is in complete control. These events have been determined. We talked about the rigidly deterministic nature of apocalyptic literature. And that would be a source of encouragement for them to know, living in a time of persecution, that uh, in the distant future, things will be fulfilled. So uh, it, it does have like a very generic, God is in control sort of a message to the original audience. But in terms of what those specific events refer to in, tar in, in, in terms of their time and space and culture, it has no relevance. So that's a particular weakness to this view. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, it seems to me that there's absolutely something—I don't deny futurism at all. Um, I think that future, there's absolutely a future aspect to the book of Revelation, because I don't believe, I'm not a preterist, I don't believe that everything in the book has already been fulfilled. That's the preterist position, and, and was fulfilled in the time of John and his writing, if not soon thereafter. But in my view, there's obviously things in Revelation that haven't happened yet, like the new heavens and the new earth, for example, or really the, the final doing away with the powers of evil, you know, Satan being cast into the the lake of fire. Um, that hasn't happened yet. There's still evil in the world. So there's certainly a future aspect. So don't, even though I'm pointing out a weakness here, don't hear me, hear me say that it's altogether wrong. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. There's certainly a futuristic aspect here. Um, but the futurist school would say, not all, there's different versions, but in general, everything from chapter four onward is in the distant future in relation to John. 
and maybe not in the distant future for us, but they have yet to happen. Now, where they don't go, this is where historicism goes, is to try to place um, all the events in the book of Revelation over the course of history leading up to our time. Um, there could be suggestions of, of what those things could correspond to leading up to our time, but there's not, ne- not necessarily among, among futurists an assumption that we are living in the last days, where the historicist is, is living, is interpreting in the assumption that we, this is the last days, and not all futurists would concede that. So futurism, historicism are, are cousins, let's say. And um, of course, the the issue with the millennial views, amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism are situated in futurism. When we talk about what premillennialism is, postmillennialism, and amillennialism is, those different views and different uh, schools of thought are futurist schools of thought. I don't want to get into the millennial views now. We'll get into that when we get to chapter 20. Um, and there's so many other uh, really helpful resources out there. I really recommend the best thing to do uh, for a quick overview, a relatively quick overview of the millennial views. If you have time in the car or whatever, um, watch uh, Thomas Schreiner's uh, video produced, I think, by Southern Seminary. It's got like a black background, um, and he's going through the millennial views and the strengths and weaknesses of each view. And I find that video very, very helpful. I really recommend it. Um, I don't agree with everything he says in the video, but I think it's a really, really well done overview. Um, okay, so futurism. Now let's talk about preterism. We're, we're, we're coming out of the fog here a bit. The next two are much easier to explain. Preterism just assumes that everything in the book took place during John's lifetime, the writer of the book, or soon thereafter. Um, so I'm going to quote the, actually, I found a really helpful definition in the ESV study Bible on preterism. Um, it says this, preterism, uh, thinks that the fulfillment of most of Revelation's visions already occurred in the distant past, during the early years of the Christian church. Preterists think these events, either the destruction of Jerusalem or the decline and fall of Roman Empire, or both, would soon take place, and that's in quotes, soon take place, referring to in the first chapter, where John talks about he has revealed the things that must soon take place in verse 1, only from the standpoint of John and the churches of Asia. In other words, everything in the book is is done. It's over. There's nothing yet to take place. It's all contained in history. Um, Grant Osborne, again, he says, this approach argues that the details of the book relate to the present situation in which John lived rather than to a future period. So there's, you know, historicism and futurism are out in this one. There's no future element that, you know, there's nothing that has to do with contemporary modern history in the book of Revelation. Now, that doesn't, preterists wouldn't argue that there's not eternal truths in the book that apply uh, to even Christians today in the world, but they're saying the events described, demonic locusts, you know, demonic uh, Calvary, demonic, uh, uh, not just demonic Calvary, sorry, demonic locusts, demonic cavalry, um, you know, the, the beast coming up out of the sea, the beast coming up out of the land, uh, Christ, even Christ's millennial reign, Christ coming, they would say it's all already taken place. Um, so, uh, also, this is from Mounts, preterists hold that the major prophecies of the book were fulfilled either in the fall of Jerusalem or in the fall of Rome. So they would see, like, as the book comes to a climax, uh, that this is really what we're talking. The climax of the book is either 70 A.D. fall of Jerusalem, or the fall of Rome, which is A.D. Uh, 476. Um, so this approach is least viable simply for this reason. Uh, it's obvious that there are things described in the book that have yet to take place, specifically the doing away with evil. Um, th- this. Uh, 
not only that, but also um, it limits the universal language of the book. So in the book, there's a regular refrain that refers to peoples, language, tribes, nations, right? Um, There's this universal language throughout Revelation um, that has to do with all of humanity. But the preterist view limits to the Jewish people which is kind of like intention with the spirit of the book itself and universal in its lang- being universal in its language and approach. So, uh, preterism, least viable. However, um, I, I don't want to argue that none of the events, as oftentimes futurism would, or even historicism, uh, can be relevant to or describing events in John's original audience. That certainly can be the case, but we don't want to restrict ourselves to say, it's all done. Some of it may be done. Some of those things that have been described in that book could have already been completed with the destruction of maybe the temple, the destruction, the fall of Rome. Uh, But it doesn't mean that it's all been completed. So, okay. So let's go to idealism. Idealism, um, it argues that symbols don't relate to historical events, but rather timeless spiritual truths. As such, Osborne writes, it relates primarily to this church between the advents. That is Christ's first and second comings. Thus, it concerns the battle between God and evil and between the church and world at all times in church history. So this view says, I'm not worried about time and when these events take place as much as the eternal truths that we find in the book itself. Uh, For example, that Christ reigns. Christ reigns now. He will reign in the future. We find peace and we find hope in that. I'm not going to try to place, um, you know, the seven trumpets and when the first trumpet is going to occur in relation to the second. And is the the uh, the Calvary out of the, the great pit or being held back at the river um, that we're going to read about, is that a Chinese army? I'm not worried about those things. What, what I see in those is that Satan's attack on the church is going to be massive. It's not just and not just going to be it is that he makes all attempt he 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 gears up for battle it's not a subtle or accidental attempt to destroy the church it is a very intentional intense attempt it's calculated it's powerful it's strong it's ugly it's evil um, when does that take place? Is this a literal historical event? I'm not concerned with that. What I am concerned with is the simple declaration that the powers of evil reign and they are ferocious, right? So that's an idealist school of interpretation. So then uh, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls depict God's judgment on sinners at all times, no matter what the generation, first generation, or excuse me, no matter what the century, first century, second century, what we read about there, when God pours out the bowls, the wrath of God, um, it's not specifically related to a, a certain historical event or a certain people group or whatever. This is just a general declaration about how God responds to sinners in the world. It refers to all anti-Christian. So the beast isn't, yeah, Rome is one, but there are, there's a Rome in every generation. It refers to all anti-Christian empires and rulers in history. So Rome is a beast and um, subsequent empires that are set against Christianity. You know, governmental powers in the world that are, they're tyrannical and geared towards the suppression of Christian values and the proclamation of truth is a beast. It's not limited to Rome and we're not concerned about um if it's, this is a singular beast or, for, or, or pointing to the future of a future beast to rise, like an all-world government, the idealist view would say, that's not the point. The point is that the, there are always going to be, in every generation of Christians, a tyrannical government that's backed by the devil who set out to destroy the church. So, 
that's the idealist view. Uh, there are certain strengths to this view, obviously the centrality of the theology of the book, the relevance for the church at all times, and the symbolic nature of the book. Um, but the absence of historical connections and the failure to see uh, the nature of many of the prophecies or to connect them in any way to history at all, um, is kind of contrary to what the text is doing. The text seems to have a specific historical timeline in mind. Seems to. And one could argue against that. But to say that we're not concerned about who, when, what, where, we're concerned about the universal spiritual truths, seems to cut out a dimension of the book that's important. And I agree with that. So, um, so the question then, as we've been through the four views, the four schools— historicist, futurist, preterist, idealist. You know, where are we? Uh, well, this is this is kind of a cop-out, but we say we're an eclectic view. We draw from all of them, with the exception of preterism. And I don't mean that we don't draw from preterism as much as we're not willing to say that everything's complete. We don't, I don't agree with that. But I believe there are future elements. I believe that there are elements that are true in every generation. So futurism, true in every generation um, and idealism. So if I had to pick, I'd, I'd do a blend of idealism and futurism. I think that it's what I, I think my final word on this matter is that um, <clears throat> we can try to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, um, think about what is this mark of the beast and what significance does it have? Is, is there a mark of the beast today? And try to identify that. And who, who is the beast today? Is it the American government? Is it, the, is it another foreign government? I say foreign because I'm here in America. Um, is it a global world power? I think that those questions aren't altogether irrelevant at all. But I think that where we uh, fall, sh- we would be falling short if we don't take the extra step to say, okay, trying to answer those questions a lot of times is speculative and interesting and relevant and, uh, and is, I think, encouraged in some ways by the nature of the book. But ultimately, what is the meaning of this for me today? What is the spiritual truth behind this uh, that we can apply for right now? I think that that's where we're on more solid footing. So I tend to lean into idealism, uh, but not totally discounting in any way, uh, not, let, let me say it this way, not, uh, discounting entirely the possibility of making connections to actual current events or historical events. But I think those are speculative and we have to be careful. Um, I think where we don't have to be as careful and we can be more sure about our interpretation is in thinking about, well, what are the spiritual truths that apply for us today? So, okay, the four schools. Again, if you're in a fog, that's okay. I think they'll become clear as we move forward. So the interpretive schools, um, I hope you found this helpful. We are going to start into the book, thank God, uh, in our next uh, episode on this series on Revelation. So again, this is Matt Ayers with Seminary Unboxed, the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we train or develop trusted leaders for faithful churches. Join us next time as we jump into Revelation chapter 1. Thank you.